millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now at 2.54am on the 12th of October 1984, a bomb exploded in the Grand Hotel in Brighton on the last day of the Conservative Party conference. The target was then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and the bomb was the work of the provisional IRA. Mrs Thatcher survived unscathed, but five people in the hotel were killed. The attack was the most audacious one launched by the Provost in their violent campaign to unite Ireland as they saw it. But what would have happened if they had been successful on that occasion? Would history have taken a different trajectory, one in which the subsequent peace process may not have been possible? or where the provost may have been the authors of their own downfall? That is one of the questions that arise out of a fascinating book, Killing Thatcher, by Rory Carroll, who is the Ireland correspondent for the Guardian newspaper. The book traces the road to that infamous bombing and also pulls together a number of threads that dominated the narrative at the time, from the assassination of Lord Louis Mountbatten through to the hunger strikes, in which Thatcher had a pivotal role, all the way to Brighton and its aftermath. It also shows the human side of the conflict on both sides, from the men and women detailed to defuse bombs in central London to the life of the man who was convicted for the Grand Hotel bomb, Patrick McGee. I'm joined now by the author, Rory Carr. Rory, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mick. Rory, what, and a great choice I have to say, but what brought you to, uh, to this particular topic or this aspect of the Northern Troubles as they were? Partly it was... The fact that I I started my career in Northern Ireland, uh, working for the as a reporter for the Irish News in the mid nineteen nineties. I mean, I'm from Dublin originally, um, but that's where I started my career. Then I basically disappeared for twenty years. I was with the Guardian as a foreign correspondent in different places around the world, and ended up coming back to Ireland as correspondent here in twenty eighteen. And I kind of I hadn't thought about much about Northern Ireland or Ireland to be honest for you know for, for twenty years, and so I came back suddenly really. In, intrigued again about everything about the recent history and you know it was kind of like kind of lapping it up and I came across the fact that Patrick McGee who was convicted of the Brighton bombing was due to write a memoir and that got me thinking also I was keen to speak to him about his memoir and I did and I did an article for The Guardian about his book Where Grieving Begins and I mean the book itself is very interesting about his background like why he joined the IRA in the 1970s um, but it it actually veiled the actual Brighton attack. I mean, he, and he's very upfront about this, saying, "Look, I'm not going to spill beans about the about the operation." Um, but in prepping for that interview with with McGee, I, you know, I did a lot of reading, and initially I assumed, "Well, this is a very you know familiar story because this is the most audacious attack um, in the whole really of of the, of the whole history of the Troubles." And yet it turned out that, in fact, it wasn't that familiar. There's tons of things that had happened that I had no idea, like I'd either forgotten or I'd never known them. And, you know, the more I I, I looked into it, I thought, I mean, there's a really fascinating story here about how they did it, why the IRA did it, 
the subsequent hunt for the bombers and no one had really told the full story like the a to z of the the, the plot and the aftermath so you know i just you know embraced it as a, as a wonderful topic for a book yeah, I can see why, and I, I I can see your point too. You can see to some extent the, the the fresh eyes coming at it because I suppose those of us who were sort of immersed in it one way or the other, it, it's always great somebody, as you say, you were away for twenty years to come at it. And that there, there's a freshness about it from that perspective. I would think definitely. Um, the narrative, Rory, has always been, and I don't know whether it's superficial or not, that this was a direct response for how Thatcher had handled the hunger strikes. In your analysis, was it that personal thing or was it more strategic than that? I think it was both. I mean, there was the the US title of the book is called There Will Be Fire. And that's drawn from a headline in Unfublocked, the Irish and Fair newspaper, which on when Bobby Sands was lying on his deathbed on hunger strike in May 1981, and Fublock ran a headline saying, there will be fire and there will be fury if he dies. And this was a warning to Margaret Thatcher. And sure enough, he did die, as did nine other Republican prisoners. So it really was very personal for the IRA and the Republican movement that Thatcher was right up there with Cromwell in terms of, you know, demonology. And so they wanted to get her for that. But there was also by, you know, the early 1980s, um, a recognition that the troubles had reached a stalemate. I mean, the IRA realized that they were not going to push the Brits into the sea. And, you know, in fact, the, 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 the Brits, as I saw it, were entrenching in Northern Ireland. They were building more RUC bases, building more schools, motorways. And so, you know, they felt that's trying to do something to, to change the strategic calculus. Um, and so blowing up Thatcher fitted the bill. You know, revenge served um, for the hunger strikers and maybe a chance to somehow scramble, you know, or, or, or shake it up, the conflict, and, and see what happens. Yeah, and quite obviously a high-stakes move. And as you related, there were some within the provisional movement who were very iffy about it and how it could backfire, which also, and you related, but I think it's also been documented elsewhere as well, there were some, and as far as I remember, including Jerry Adams, who were very iffy about the hunger strikes and how that could backfire as well. Yes, there were so many unexpected kind of twists and ironies in all of this. I mean, for example, yes, Jerry Adams was very uh, uncertain about the hunger strikes. In fact, he opposed the hunger strikes at the outset. He thought, no, this we've had too many failed campaigns and it's not going to work. You know, you're not going to get what you want the, to the, the prisoners. And it's just going to be another, you know, um, glorious failure. And yet once the, the hunger strike started taking off and, you know, and especially one after another dying when they staggered the, the strikers so that they were not, didn't all die in one big kind of clump, but it was a kind of every few weeks that was kind of an agonizing, you know, process for, and traumatic for Ireland. I mean, even people who had no truck with the IRA and had no sympathy um, for them could not but be affected by that. And that, of course, opened, as we saw in hindsight, an electoral doorway for Sinn Féin. And Adams, early on during the hunger strike, spotted this. I mean, of course, uh, Bobby Sands was elected as an MP, but Adams, you know, and he's, you know, he is credited with being able to see around corners and being able to just view things in the long term, saw that this really was a chance long term for the Republican movement to enter electoral politics. And so... 
I mean, and one of the ironies is that Thatcher, in her by her her stance on the hunger strikes, in a sense, opened the door to Sinn Fein, um, Sinn Fein's electoral advance, which you know nobody had expected and nobody recognised at the time. Yeah, and uh, as I say, also there was some debate over whether or not it would be strategically a good idea to try and kill her. Absolutely, because no one knew what would happen if they did kill her. I mean, they certainly expected that if that if that happened that there would be a whirlwind in the in the short term, that, you know, the British security forces would come and hunt them down, them meaning all the top players in the IRA and, and Sinn Féin too, um, to the point that there, were, there, there was an expectation that they would, would need to hunker down for at least six months, meaning, you know, go to the Republic of Ireland and hope that there are no kind of SAS squads dispatched across the border uh, to hunt them down. Um, and... You know, because and, and then who's going to take over from Thatcher? And then what would happen? And I think only it was very naive, but I think some in the IRA did think, well, if we get her and also maybe blow up half the government, I mean, the Brits, after an initial big backlash against us, then they made us think, you know what, this is not worth the candle. I mean, Northern Ireland, we, you know, we just lost our government. I mean, let's get out of here. We don't care about this place. Let the Irish kill themselves. We're out of here. That was never going to happen. And yet... You know, certain Republicans did think or hope that that it would, because often there's this complete mismatch between, you know, the way British government thought and operated and how it was perceived by by certain Republican strategists. You know, I think Republicans often they were they're focused on the day to day tactics of survival, of not getting arrested, of moving weapons dumps here and there. Who's the next, you know, planting the next landmine? And to a long-term strategic vision under those circumstances was quite difficult. So they didn't, you know, with a few exceptions, they didn't really think that long ahead. No, and uh, you're right, uh, in in terms of Gerry Adams, the perception has always been he could see around corners. I've I've seen other analysis that suggest things happened and retrospectively looked like that. But to be fair to him, there's no doubt he was very astute absolutely at various stages of the way this all developed. Now, you begin, what I might call the, the road to Brighton, effectively, Rory, with the assassination of Louis Mountbatten in Mullochmore in Sligo. Why, to you, was that a starting off point? Two reasons. Firstly, it showed the IRA's ruthlessness and capacity to go after, you know, as they would put it, prestige targets. And, you know, the... Because up to that point, I mean, Batten was by far, you know, the biggest name that they, they, they got. And, you know, to show how they could do it, you know, so that capacity. But also it brings Margaret Thatcher into the story. She had just been elected as prime minister a few months earlier. And so Northern Ireland was so not on the agenda. You know, I mean, she was impatient to, you know, to start a, a domestic revolution, to shake up the British economy. And is going to involve battles with the trade unions. I mean, that was her focus, not Northern Ireland. And yet she, because of the, the, the murder of Mountbatten and his, his family, plus the same day in Warren Point, 18 British soldiers killed there. I mean, this brings Thatcher literally over to Northern Ireland. She had to fly over the, the next day. And she has to start making choices quickly about, well, what's going on here? I mean, the whole place is a mess. How do we, how do I respond? And in, one of the things she decided to do was to continue with a process of criminalization, whereby prisoners would no longer be given the run of, say, long cash or being able to, you know, in, uh, operate as if they were in a prisoner of war camp. And instead, they would be treated just as regular criminals, as murderers, rapists. 
And of course, this then led to the the prison protests and the hunger strikes. So in a sense, the murder of Mountbatten was the initiating uh, incident that really got the, the wheels turning in the eventual plot to uh, to assassinate Thatcher. And Erie Neve, who was very close to her, I think it was some months before that, he was murdered by the INLA, I think it was in the Rampen in uh, Westminster coming out. That, that, that was some months before that when he, she was very close to him as well. So so for her, also, also it was very personal. Yes, I mean, she had lost, yeah. he had been her campaign manager. She trusted him. I mean, she was, he was one of the people she was closest to. And the fact that the INLA um, killed him just on the cusp as, as she became leader of the, um, it was, it, it was devastating for her. Um, and also, by the way, there's a link with Mountbatten in that, I mean, some people have put it to me, Republicans have said that the IRA felt upstaged by the INLA. I mean, the fact that the INLA got Airy Neve, who was also a prestige target and in a House of Commons of all places, that the IRA felt that, you know, this is the, you know, the poor, you know, cousins here have, have, have you know, have pulled the rug from Andres, you know, and so that the murdering Mountbatten, in a sense, was a game of one-upmanship. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly d- does fit with, um, with what I've been told. Tell me about Patrick McGee. An enigma in many ways. I mean, he was a central casting IRA man of the early 1970s. West Belfast, uh, Catholic, working class background. Grew up in a family that wasn't especially Republican, but, you know, certainly nationalist inclined. But then there's a twist because uh, when he was a young boy, the family moved to Norwich in northern England for work. The the dad had, had worked there. So McGee, he was wrenched from the... You know, West Belfast, with an extended family and what he considered home, to be and transplanted into an English city, and he never really liked it there. Never fully settled. Um, although he grew up and he, you know, in school he was kind of troubled. It would, like they, you know, he was physically very small, quite it appeared frail, um, and although he had an English accent, he was still Paddy. I mean, he was Patrick McKee, but he was like Paddy in English. Was, All right, Paddy, and you know he. he he was a, kind of a fish out of water. And so when, when and then he, he ran with the wrong crowd. They ended up breaking into, um, like with a gang and they, they broke into some shops. Faithfully, I don't want to kind of give too much in the, the story away, but he was fingerprinted at the age of 15 for having broken into a, a butcher shop. And this plays a crucial role later on in the in the story. Um, but he was lost, you know, he didn't know what, you know, where, where he was and he was drifting. And then as a te- then late teens, the troubles erupted and then he goes back to Belfast to see what's going on. And there he 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 joins the fight and he fought hard to get into the IRA because they were suspicious of him. They thought this guy is coming over from England. He still has an English accent. But he he, he insisted and eventually they let him in. And not only did they let him in, but he became an engineering officer, which is the IRA term for a bomb maker, which is the most dangerous thing you could be doing at that time because so many were blowing themselves up. Um, but McGee had the, you could say, you know, the, the nerves, you could say courage to, to become a bomb maker and successfully so because he lived, he didn't blow himself up. And he became th- this enigma because he, he wanted to be bring the war to England. He thought, I've got a special skill here. I can put on an English accent. I'm familiar with England. I can operate across the water. Many IRA men couldn't do that because all they knew was 
East Tyrone or the Falls Road. And you take them, you know, 10 miles down the road and they would be feel awkward or self-conscious. And so put them in England and they would be, they stick out like a sore thumb. Whereas McGee, in contrast, could blend in. He knew, you know, how the, the, you know the tube worked in London and, and so on. And so he volunteered to become uh, this operator across the water. And that was his specialty, you know, as a bomb planter, bomb maker, but also someone who got to operate kind of commando style behind enemy lines. And that's... But to this day, IRA people will say, oh, Pat, a quiet one, Pat. Because he's, even under IRA terms, he's very, quite guarded, um, very thoughtful, and also highly intelligent. I mean, this is a guy who ended up getting a PhD in, uh, in prison. So, in fact, he's Dr. McGee, really. Um, and so he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, a, a very thoughtful, quiet, enigmatic character. Yeah, and he does come across very intelligent as well, absolutely. And also, I mean, his his dedication to what he was doing. Uh, he 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 married early on, or he met his partner and had a child. And uh, because of his kind of itinerant lifestyle, as a result of what he was doing, that went by the wayside. Moved around a lot down in Shannon for a while, which for some reason Shannon attracted. Well, it's more IRSP and INLA people, but. For some reason, yeah, he was down there for a while and he was in Ballymun in North Dublin for a while and back and forth to England. And that period, Rory, there was a lot of bombings in England. That campaign of bringing it to England, planting bombs. Some of them, I would claim, were were, uh, targeted at military personnel, but also innocent people died. And there was particular ones in 82, 1982, the Hyde and Regent Park bombings. Now, nobody, I, I, McGee has never been connected to those, but I think it's fair to say that in his memoir, he doesn't talk very much or he doesn't write very much or recall very much about 1982. That's right. Um, he has not been, other people have been named, in fact, charged with those attacks. Um, McGee, his name has never been mentioned by the British security forces in connection with those. But there is a gap. I mean, in this story, I mean, I was covering like several years, um, his footprints kind of disappeared in 1982, as if you're following, you know, someone through the snow. And you can see what he was doing in 1979, 1980, 81, and then 82. It all becomes a bit um, unclear. I mean, he, he had been, although of course he had been shot um, because I mean, he had to jump back in time a bit. I mean, he, he he moved to the Netherlands to try to start a new life there. He was arrested. Um, uh, the British failed to extradite him, but he ends up coming back to Dublin. And he gets a job with Unfoblocked and Republican News in, in working as a kind of an artist, copy setter in the arts department uh, during the hunger strikes. Um, and it was during that time when a loyalist gunman uh, stormed the Sinn Féin office and opened fire, and one of the people he hit was Patrick McGee. It was hit in the in the in the knee. So that was late nineteen eighty one. So by nineteen eighty two, I mean he was hobbling around on crutches for a while. So I mean what he was actually doing may not have been especially dramatic, but I mean for sure there's lots of things about his career that uh, he has never spoken about and never will because in theory he could still perhaps be prosecuted if there were crimes. Um, and likewise, there are certain things that I couldn't put in uh, in the book because, well, for some for the same reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was he was definitely was a key operator and someone who within the IRA was highly regarded. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now, on the other side of the fence, and I have to say I found this element of the book fascinating and chilling in some ways, you had uh, personnel in the... British police and security service who were involved in bomb disposal and you had individuals like Peter Gurney. Um, it, it, it was really unbelievably precarious work they were involved in and they found themselves constantly trying to basically defuse bombs that were being set by the IRA in, in, in London and other cities. Yes, and this part was fascinating and completely new to me that, well, firstly, just the role of bomb disposal experts. I mean, what they did was, I mean, it requires, they call it the long walk when you are, you know, a bomb has been discovered and you're the guy sent to defuse it. Um, and of course, everybody else clears away, you know, and they're standing hundreds of meters away. And you're the one, you know, wearing the bomb suit if there's time to put one on and you're walking on and you're on your own there. Um, I mean, the, the courage it would take to do that um, is phenomenal. Um, and in fact, they often, their fear was that not being killed so much, but that they thought, okay, if I'm just blown up and, and obliterated, so be it. I can, you know, um, but what if in, instead I'm maimed, my, my limbs are blown off, I'm blind, and I spend the rest of my life like that? So, you know, the, the stakes could not have been higher. And Peter Gurney is one character because his, in a way, his career as a, in, in the British Army threaded, braided, or intersected so many times with, with Patrick McGee's. Um, and in 1982, by then, he had left the army. He was with Scotland. Peter Gurney was now with Scotland Yard as a bomb disposal, police bomb disposal man. And one of his uh, his best friends, Ken Howarth, a fellow bomb disposal man, was blown up by uh, an IRA bomb in London, which had been designed, it's very clear, specifically to target the bomb disposal guys. Because there was this kind of really kind of fiendish game of cat and mouse between IRA bomb makers and the bomb disposal, British bomb disposal experts, whereby they would, the IRA would set certain bombs in a certain way and specifically to target the guy who would end up trying to disarm the bomb. And, you know, I, I, I never knew about this kind of battle within the battle. Um, and so Gurney was a fascinating character and he, you know, threads all the way through the story he was at Brighton um, and also in, in the end, well, again, I don't want to give too much away, but he ends up defusing Patrick McGee's very final bomb or helped to defuse yeah. it. And some, I mean, some of it, it really brings it home. If I just quote briefly from from the book and it's in relation to the aftermath of the Harrods bombing in it was Christmas 1983. And Gurney comes along, he goes into the wreckage, he sees a body. It's that of a young woman, which he initially mistook for a mannequin. 
in the shop and, and just as you write it, she'd been blown through a plate glass window and lay broken upon, upon gaily coloured wreckage. Her skirt had been blown off and she had underpants adorned with a heart that embraced the message, I love you. Instead of seeing her as a clue to the bomb, as the job demanded, he saw her as a person. Who had she been, this girl? Who had she loved and who had loved her? That night at home, he wept. It's pretty raw stuff, isn't it? It is. And it, I mean, I included those details because it's, it's so humanizing. And that was mm. the way I wanted to tell this story was that you can't assume anyone's really going to care about this. Because, you know, as long, you know, for, especially for younger people, you know, there's so long ago, it can feel like ancient history. And kind of there's a, like it could be a, a so what factor. And yet this is important, you know, and the world we live in today in some way, you know, are shaped by these events. And so, well, I thought, well, you have to earn, people will read this story if you earn their attention. And the way I tried to do that was by focusing on a handful of characters, you know, real people, I call them characters, but I mean, we're talking about, you know, actual people. And we see how their lives intersect over these, the, the years of this story um, much in the, as, as we would in, in a novel. Um, you know, we see who they are, we, there's dialogue, we hear them speaking, and yet it's all non-fiction. I mean, this is all, you know, documented and, you know, there's, there's copious end notes at the back of the book explaining the, the sourcing of everything. Um, but the point being that you're brought into the worlds of these people. So you're brought into Patrick McGee's world. You see, his, you see why he does what he does. Likewise, Peter Gurney. Um, and some of the other police, and then also Margaret Thatcher. She's also obviously a, a key person. And she's not just the Iron Lady. You see that she's also a mum, a wife, uh, a flirt at times. Um, you can see that she's also having to fight against the you know, explicit sexism within the Conservative Party. I mean, it's easy to forget just what a trailblazer she was in terms of just um, you know, becoming the leader of the Conservative Party in the, in the 1970s, you know, with extraordinary um, things. But we see who is the real person behind that. And we see how they kind of uh, orbit around themselves. I mean, all these different uh, people, different worlds, um, and all brought together with this, in a sense, kind of awful, but also awfully compelling plot to assassinate the Iron Lady. Absolutely. And I, and look, I'm, in my opinion, you've absolutely succeeded in doing that, Rory, the, the humanising of it and the whole idea of... of um I think a lot of people forget what was involved in violence at the time and bombs in particular and the absolute carnage that they create. And I think you've really uh, got to the heart of that in terms of humanising what happened there, what the actual fallout from them is. I mean, it it, it really comes home, absolutely. Uh, And it's interesting you mentioned Margaret Thatcher as well. What comes across is, yes, we have a a public image of Margaret Thatcher and a lot of it is justified. There's a lot of people who had major issues with her politics and what have you. She also had human qualities and they come across as well, I have to say, um, in that as you relayed it there. Now, the bombing itself, um, we don't want to give too much away or what have you, but it's quite obviously it happened and um, it was well planned. And the day it went off, McGee, his role becomes very obvious, but McGee was actually watching it unfold on, the, on a news station in a pub in Cork. Yes, I mean, he, he knew because they, the key to the whole plot was the timer. Um, and he'd set the bomb three weeks earlier. He checked into the hotel as a guest, posing as an Englishman. 
planted the bomb and concealed it in a in a room and it ticked down to 2.54 a.m. Um, and he, of course, he knew this. And by then, so three weeks later, he was in Cork in a, in a billet, a safe house, and he couldn't sleep that night, and understandably so. Uh, I mean, his main concern was that the bomb wouldn't go off because, I mean, this, you know, the most ambitious attempt or attack by the IRA and involved multiple people. He was the last link in the chain. He didn't want to screw up. That was his thing. And his concern was, well, what if there's a dud fuse or the battery doesn't work or the bomb is discovered, it doesn't go off. So he was worried about that and that he would have kind of thrown away the IRA's best chance ever, you know, to, to strike at, at the heart of the, the British government. So he's tossing and turning, can't sleep, listening to transistor radio, trying to get pirate radio news that's giving these news updates on the hour. But it took until about 6 a.m. that morning when they, the news finally updated to say there's been a bomb in Brighton. Um, Thatcher survived, but there are casualties. And once he finally heard that, he kind of he said that he, he, the relief just flooded him because he says, and he, con- he, he con- concedes how morally how awful this is, right? That, oh, he's delighted the bomb's gone off. But he was, I and mean, he saw himself as a soldier. And so he finally got to sleep for a while that morning. But then later, a few hours later, he goes into town and um, goes to a pub where there's a TV on and he's watching. And of course, all the news was brightened. The rubble of the Grand Hotel collapsed. Um, you know, now there's you know, police combing all over the rubble. And he's sitting there in this pub and he said it was quite silent. People were just very, I guess, shocked and also wanting to see the news. And he ordered a Guinness and he just kept to himself watching the news and also reflected on the fact that they'll never forget this, the British. I mean, they'll never forget this. And they will come hunting um, him forever. I mean, they didn't know who he was at that time, but he knew that he would be hunted probably for the rest of his life. Yeah, very much so. And and again, without giving away too much, but it's quite obvious he was convicted for it. But what I found interesting thereafter was, as you said, he he, he knew he'd be a marked man. Yet despite that he actually went back and offered himself up again to go back to the UK. Now, in the event that, that, that enough evidence had been assembled, he could have been charged, which would have been really interesting, if he had been uh, put on trial in Ireland, because uh, at that stage, I think the, the mechanism was in place whereby people could be tried like that. It would have been very interesting if that happened. But one way or the other, the fact that despite all of that, at the end of all of that, what he'd been through... Uh, his family gone, etc. The whole thing. He still wanted to go back and continue. It was all he knew, and you know that's that's what he was. He was completely committed to the cause. Uh, he felt that, especially bombs in England were you know worth a hundred or a thousand bombs in Belfast, and that he was uniquely equipped to to help the IRA do that. And just his life otherwise was. And I think this is me psychologizing a bit, but I think you might even agree himself, Patrick McGee, that, you know, a lot of his self-esteem, his sense of self was wrapped up in being, not just being an IRA man, but being part of the operational elite, you know, part of the England department, the one that was tasked with exporting the war to across the, the, the water. And so, you know, were he to stop doing that, well, then what would he do? You could be, you know, hanging out in Dublin, maybe helping with logistics, 
you know, um, and he, but no, he, he felt, I guess, you know, he, he was ideologically and I think psychologically, he had this kind of urge, compulsion to go back. Um, now, another question is, well, why did the IRA send him back? I mean, on their terms, he was sort of like a red light, you know, he, it, they didn't know the IRA, didn't know that he had been identified by the British security forces for Brighton, because quite, I guess, cleverly, the, the British intelligence agencies kept that quiet. After they'd identified, they knew it was McGee. But, you know, they tried to keep it quiet in hope he would come back to Britain. And sure enough, he did. But the British should have been careful about what they wished for because he came back to Britain, but they lost him again. I mean, they didn't know where he was. They just knew he'd left. He had been under surveillance in Ballymun um, by the Gardaí at the, at the behest of the, the British. But when he, when he disappeared off the radar, they'd, no one knew where he'd gone. And as it turned out, he'd gone back across to, to Britain to prepare a new campaign, which is extraordinarily, you could call it bold or reckless, but that, that's what he did. Yeah, indeed, it is. Um, it's unbelievable in some ways, but I, I, I can see what you mean, though, in, in terms of his sense of esteem, and, and that was all he knew, and there are plenty of other examples of that elsewhere. One of the fallouts, it would appear, and I hadn't thought of this much before I read it in the book, but I mean, it makes perfect sense that uh, up until that point, Norman Tebbit would have been seen by many as the obvious uh, heir apparent or successor to Margaret Thatcher. He was certainly known as somebody who would have espoused very right-wing politics in some ways, even to the right of Thatcher, someone would suggest. But one of the fallouts from the bomb, his wife was grievously injured and he effectively stepped back from frontline politics. And from what you can gather, Rory, is there a general feeling, particularly among the, the, the Tories at the time, that uh, that was really what did for his political career? And had, had that not occurred, he may well have succeeded, Thatcher. There is consensus, uh, I think, that I'm within the... I, know I spoke to senior people around Thatcher who, who knew and worked with Norman Tebbit in... Um, in, in Whitehall and they said after the bombing I mean he in a sense he was different because firstly his own injuries were much more grievous than he had let on and maybe very courageously he just wanted to do the British thing of stiff upper lip don't complain you know and even though he was in pain um, but you know that makes anybody you know um, querulous um, and but even more so was that his wife tragically his Margaret Tebbit was had become a paraplegic and so completely paralyzed from the, the the chest down and you know so he this affected his his the way he could you know his his work but also it affected his relationship with margaret thatcher i mean she apparently had survivor's guilt because she basically emerged unscathed from the the, the bombing and yet her namesake margaret tebbit emerged paralyzed and part of margaret thatcher felt that should have been me it was supposed to be me and so you know this colored in a very human sense, her own relationship with Norman Tebbit. And so the, the relationship between Tebbit and Thatcher, which had been really at the, you know, at the heart of Thatcherism as, as, as an ideology, began to fray. And it meant that he became, he was then moved out of the cabinet. He be, he's moved to sideways to, to become party chairman. And he then decided eventually just to, to step down from frontline politics because he just thought... I need to take care of my wife. And this, in a way, there's a, a heartbreaking, you could say beautiful love story here in, in, in the Brighton aftermath, whereby that Norman Tebbit, you know, 
quits his am- am- ambitions, you know, political ambitions, to to become a full time carer for his wife, um, and he did so. I mean, he did it, he did so for decades afterwards. Yeah, you're right, and this was another example, in some ways, of the contrast between someone's public profile and the, their uh, their personal lives and personal qualities and what have you. No question there, because Tebbit had a particular image. Or, <laughs> or maybe it's where I was at, at at that stage of life, but whatever. But uh, yeah, two quotes, Rory, that leaped out at me and not, you know, it, it just kind of reflection point of view uh, taken from the book. And just to get your opinion, I mean, after the Harrods bomb in 83, uh, which would have been a Christmas Thatcher, either before Christmas or immediately after, I can't remember now specifically, she went over to the north and... Um, did her thing there. And while she was there, and it's a very simple, obvious quote, but I'm just, if you look at it in one particular way, while there she said, I want the people in Northern Ireland to know that they will remain part of the United Kingdom as long as the population here wants. All very straightforward. Patrick McGee's memoir, and you quote from him in his memoir, where he says, I am satisfied we prevailed, but at terrible cost. Now, the thing that strikes me about Thatcher's comment there in 1984, at the height of all of this is, well, the exact same thing, years later, deaths later, peace process, etc., whatever you want to call it, absolutely pertains to this day, that as long as the people in Northern Ireland want it to remain as part of the UK, it shall do so. And that, in one way, was at the heart of what the IRA were at. And the other thing is, is McGee, and I'm satisfied we prevail, but at terrible cost, it's unusual in my experience for somebody who was involved in that campaign to admit that the cost was terrible and, and you know, inherent in that is, is taking responsibility for a lot of it. I just thought that was very interesting. I think, yeah, I mean, when you refer to Patrick McGee, refer to the cost, I think he's referring to two things. One is, of course, the human suffering that they inflicted, um, but also in so doing the own kind of moral cost, the moral debt that they then, you know, paid themselves, mm. the fact that he has to live with the fact that, you know, he, he blew up um, civilians. But I, I think Patrick McGee's viewpoint is he's not a member of Sinn Féin, but is very much reflective of the Sinn Féin analysis of what happened. And in fact, Jerry Adams endorsed Patrick McGee's memoir because it's, I mean, Sinn Féin's official view is that, yes, I mean, the IRA did what language do they say? Um, it was a war. Terrible things happened in the war, um, but that it was justifiable. It was legitimate. It was necessary to achieve to advance our goals because to mo- the democratic path at that time was not open. Um, that's the so McGee's view is the same as, as Sinn Fein's really, and yet, but the, to go back to the Thatcher quote, you said, but what did they achieve? You know, I mean, what. You know, what did the Good Friday Agreement deliver that they didn't have before? I mean, because, I mean, to dive into the weeds, I mean, the Sunningdale Agreement of 1973 already basically offered like a template of what eventually became offered again in in the Good Friday Agreement. And, uh, you know, Seamus Mallon called, you know, the the Good Friday Agreement Sunningdale for slow learners. Um, It was a crack also at unionists as as, as well as Republicans. And I agree with that because... You know, w- w- what did they achieve from, you know, certainly from the, you know, the mid 1970s onwards, you know, what, all that violence, all those deaths, all that suffering, ultimately for what? I mean, what, you know, tell me what exactly was achieved, you know, from that. And it's, you know, Sinn Féin really struggles to give a, a clear answer to that. Absolutely. It's expressed 
those kind of views myself there recently and I got a hammering for it, but it just shows you that the kind of suggestion, a lot of people very interested in rewriting history in that respect. Finally, the other thing that leaped out at me was uh, Patrick McGee. Uh, he's on in life now. He's in his 60s, perhaps going to his 70s. And for somebody who was so central to their operation, the, the provisional IRA's operation, and, you know, in, in, in some respects within their firmament would perhaps be regarded as a hero, very much somebody who never got to fulfil his potential in terms of his intelligence and what have you, or perhaps just was his 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 personality. He didn't become part of uh, Sinn Féin in any respect, as other, for example, former senior people within the provost, the likes of Jerry Kelly did. Very much a man on the margins. Did you get the impression that he's happy enough to be there or he's disappointed or whatever in that respect? I'm not sure, is my honest answer, because, as I said, he's quite guarded, Um I don't think politics would have been for him because he's so private, you know, even in his personality um, and quiet. I don't think he he would have been a good politician. He could have made a good academic. You know, he's I can have read his uh, his his books, his two books. And, you know, he could have well um, thrived in academia, but, but no institution will touch him because of his notoriety. Um, but he did have this very interesting afterlife um, because after he was released under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement in 1999, he ended up striking up a remarkable friendship with Joe Berry, who was the English daughter of Sir Anthony Berry, who was a, an MP um, and a Tory uh, deputy chief whip, who died in the rubble of, of the Grand Hotel. And they struck up this astonishing friendship, which has endured over 20 years. They've appeared on stage together discussing reconciliation, forgiveness, understanding, and they have um, become almost like a, a double act of this. And I think, in a sense, it's given meaning uh, to um, for him. And so he is very um, thoughtful about this and what it all means. And I mean, but there's no, but it's, it's not that neat either. You can't tie a bow on this story because he still justifies the bombing. And he still says it was a legitimate act of war. So, sorry, not sorry. And that means he inhabits kind of a moral, I would say, murk in that, you know, to justify what many people would consider unjustifiable acts. But it does make him very human. It does. And again, not, <laughs> not to try and delve too much into psychology, but as you say, he still justifies it. Well, he'd have to on one level because... That was his whole life, and 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 his whole life was wrapped up in it. And were that, in retrospect, he couldn't justify it. That would be a major problem. We've seen that in other areas, particularly some areas, people's relationship with the church and what have you. But uh, it is a very uh, interesting scenario. Rory, I have to say, and I, I'm I'm not, I'm I'm saying this genuinely. As far as I'm concerned, this is a fantastic book. It's particularly relevant today. Because, as you mentioned yourself, an awful lot of people have forgotten what's gone on. There's whole generations who were not around when it went on. And people can look at it now in a historical sense without taking cognizance of the fact you were talking about an awful lot of human life and what became of it on, on, on both sides of the, of the conflict. Killing Thatcher by Rory Carroll. It's in the shops now, folks. Rory, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. 
also like to thank our engineer as always JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening we'll talk to you again next week tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on Amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.